Hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I know we're going to have more folks trickling in as the uh, event continues, so I'll go ahead and just let folks in. But in um, the aspects to make sure everybody's uh, time is respected, we're going to go ahead and start. My name is Eddie. Uh, I uh, work here for Valley Bay Bidrash. I'm going to introduce today's speaker. I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Hana Lakshin Bob. She is a Ram at the Midrash Amudim in Modim and the director of the education at Edu Together, an online academy. Today's uh, program is called Real Questions and Fake Questions at the Seder. Thank you so much. Great, thank you so much, Eddie. All right, so um, I wanna talk about, um, basically we're gonna be talking about what's supposed to be happening in our homes on Passover night. And um, I wanna hear from all of you. So feel free as I'm speaking to either, um, either to send me messages on chat or to unmute yourselves at any point and jump in and answer. I'm gonna be throwing out questions and if you have questions, so um, please feel free to um, join and participate. Um, Okay, so basically the question that I wanna start with is what's supposed to be happening in our homes on Passover night? Are we supposed to be having an evening of free-flowing conversation in which we discuss the things that are important to us and challenge the things that are bothering us? Or are we supposed to be saying a bunch of things, do it performing a ritual? where we say a bunch of things by rote. Um, and my, I'm gonna suggest that this overall question of what is the Seder night supposed to be kind of all hinges on one particular moment in the Seder. And that moment is the Manishtana. Um, the Manishtana is a lot of people's kind of favorite part of the Seder, um, right? If you were to think of like, oh, what's in the Seder right away, you think of the Manishtana, it's this great moment. Um, but it also kind of reflects exactly the, the problem with the Seder, which is on the one hand, Manishtana, it's so cool that this like focal point of our Seder is questions, is like thinking about what's bothering us and what we don't understand and like that's what we're putting right in the middle of the seder um so that's really cool but on the other hand and now i want to just show you a picture um this is a picture of a haggadah the the front cover of a haggadah that was published, I think in 2008 or so. So it's relatively contemporary. And it has a picture of two children singing Manishtana. Um, raise your hand if this is what Manishtana looks like in your Seder. All right, we got a couple of hands. Um, yep. Yep, <laughs> right, this is maybe a familiar moment for many of us. And in this picture, what is the Manishtana? Is this a moment of children thinking about what's going on around them and challenging um, the people around them with questions? Is that what's going on here? Not so much. I see people shaking their heads. What, how would you characterize what the children are doing in this picture? It's a performance. 
Yes, that's exactly the word that I was thinking of. And I will tell you how we know that Manishtana at your typical Seder is a performance. We know because in general, when someone asks you a question, you give them the answer. But when someone puts on a performance, you applaud. And what do we do after the children say Manishtana? We totally don't answer their questions. Um, in fact, we, um, the Seder itself doesn't really get to answering the questions of Manishtana about like, why do we eat matzah? Why do we eat maror? Until like a much later point in the Seder, a later point by which the children who ask the questions are often already asleep or at the very least have left the table. So they never really actually get their answers. And instead, we basically just applaud. We say, oh, thank you so much. Good job. Oh, that was so wonderful. Um, and that's what we do with Manishtana. So that basically, we take this moment, um, we have this moment of questions, but I want to say that they are basically fake questions. That the Manishtana, it's it's not real. It's not like a real moment of someone saying like, wait a minute, what's going on? It's just a fake question. I'll just show you one more picture also, which is also from, from a much older Haggadah. This is from the Shik Haggadah, which was um, first created by the author Arthur Shik in like the 1930s, but it was mass published only around 1960. Um, and here you see also the kid is reading the questions. You can see that it's Manishtana because you've got the big mem of Manishtana and then the words of Manishtana around the sides. But in the picture, what you see is a kid who's reading from a text. And then you've got this like father or grandfather or whatever he is, who basically just looks kind of bored. Um, and um, and that's, you know, okay, oh, these questions again, all right, why do we masa, why do we mara? Um, so that instead of us seeing real questions in the Manishtana, all we've got is like this ritualized performance. Um, so what I want to do is I want to study some texts about questions and about the Manishtana. So let's start with questions. Um, the Torah describes children asking real questions, not fake questions. For example, in Exodus chapter 12, um, it says, when you enter the land, the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall observe this right. Um, and when your children ask you, what do you mean by this right? You shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord, right? So the children ask you a question. The children just sit there. They're watching you as you are performing the rituals of Passover. And the children are asking questions. They're saying, what, what's going on here? What, what, what do you mean by that? Um, so that's actually, the Torah describes there being a real question. Um, in source number two, Exodus chapter 13, again, there is this scenario of children asking questions. Well, first there's two things. First of all, if you look in verse eight, it says, and you shall explain to your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I went free from Egypt. So there's, you know, sort of conversation where you're sort of pointing out to your kids what's going on and you're telling them what, what happened. And then a few verses later in verse 14, it says, and when in time to come, your son asks you saying, what does this mean? You shall say to him, it was with a mighty hand that the Lord brought us from Egypt, the house of bondage. So again, you've got a child who's asking a real question, who's just looking around and he's saying, wait a minute, what's going on? Why are we doing this? Um, again, in Deuteronomy, 
there's another description of a child asking a real question. When in time to come, your son asks you, what mean the decrees, laws, and rules that the Lord our God has enjoined upon you, right? That they see you doing all these things, cleaning for Pesach, um, following all of these like weird arcane rules. And they're like, wait, why are we doing this? And you shall say to your children, we were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt and the Lord freed us from Egypt with a mighty hand. So again, the Torah describes, I'm just gonna take down this screen share for a second. The Torah describes children asking real questions of their parents, children watching the Passover rites and coming up with real things that are bothering them and asking their parents about them. This is incidentally, we, we just saw here three different spontaneous questions by children in the Torah. And I wanna just point out that this is actually the only places in the Torah where the Torah says, if your child asks you a question, um, meaning every time in the Torah that your child asks you a question, the answer is always the exodus from Egypt. That is like the topic about which the Torah wants you to talk to your children. And the Torah seems to imagine a scenario where you're having this conversation that is initiated by the child. And it's initiated naturally and truly that the child is like, wait, what's happening and that that is the opening for your conversation. Now what I wanna do is I wanna take a look at the rabbinic sources where the rabbis talk about what actually happens at the Seder night. Um, and when it comes to what actually happens at the Seder night, we're gonna start with the Mishnah. Now the Mishnah is um, the sort of one of the most important rabbinic compilations that was edited around the year um, 200 of the Common Era, so like nearly 2000 years ago. Um, and it's sort of one of these sort of first codes of Jewish law. And here's how the Mishnah describes how you would say Manish Tanah. They pour the second cup. I'm reading over here, source number four. They pour the second cup and here the son asks his father, and if the son does not have intelligence, his father teaches him. Okay, so there's two possibilities, and we're going to come back to this. Either the son asks, or the father teaches him. Then the Mishnah goes on. Why is this night different from all other nights? As on all other nights, we eat leavened bread and matzah. On this night, all matzah. As on all other nights, we eat other vegetables. On this night, bitter herbs. And as on all other nights, we eat roasted, stewed, or cooked meat. But on this night, all the meat is roasted. That one is different from what we do in our Manishtana today because we don't give the Passover sacrifice anymore. As on all other nights, we dip twice, once on this night, twice. So those are the questions of the Manishtana, slightly different from what we know, but basically those are the questions. And then the Mishnah says, and according to the intelligence of the son, his father teaches him. He begins with disgrace and concludes with praise, right? So that part of what you're supposed to do at the Seder is you're supposed to start from something bad and end with something good. And he expounds from the passage in Aramean tried to destroy my father until he concludes the entire section. Um, so that that's kind of the next thing that happens in the Seder is that you read all of these verses and you give, um, you provide interpretations of them. Now, I wanna go back to that line at the beginning where it says, it says, here the son asks his father. 
And if the son does not have intelligence, his father teaches him. It seems pretty clear to me that the Mishnah here is presenting a plan A and a plan B. What to do if you have a smart child and what to do if you don't have a smart child. But what is plan A and what is plan B? What are you supposed to do if your child is, what's supposed to happen if the child is smart? And what's supposed to happen if the child is not smart? Doesn't the Hebrew say knowledgeable? Okay, so im ein da'at baben aviv melamdo is the Hebrew. Um, da'at can be many things. It can be understanding, it can be knowledge, it can be intent even, though I don't think that that's appropriate here. Um, so so what, is, what is plan A and what is plan B here? Uh, if you're looking for a verbal response for a chat. Yeah, go for it. Okay. Yeah, so, give, give me a verbal response. So plan A is the expectation that the child is old enough to ask the question and intelligent enough to manage the answer. And plan B is the child isn't old enough to ask the question. So the, the parent basically gives him the question, and then having given him the question, then proceeds to give him the answer. So right. okay. I, I mean, I don't, I break this thing down, not that, that someone, you know, because this is, this is the, what is it, the four children? What is the wise, wise child? I mean, when, when you see the sources, you understand where the Haggadah comes from, which is a first for me. But, totally, yeah. Yeah, but clearly, the issue here is not to embarrass the child, but, okay. but to basically, if the child is knowledgeable to answer the question, and if the child is not knowledgeable to give him the questions and then provide the answers. So it's a teaching right. moment, not yes. a, a, a castigating or embarrassing moment. True. Um, exactly. All right. So basically what you're saying is plan A is the child asks the question and plan B is the parent asks the question. Now, I think that the next passage of the Talmud basically says that. So what we just read now is the Mishnah. And what comes next is the um, is a passage of Talmud. The Talmud is basically a long, expansive commentary on the Mishnah written over the course of centuries after the publication of the Mishnah. Um, before I read this passage of Talmud, I need to say a general word about source sheets. Whenever somebody hands you a neat little source sheet, you should always be a little bit suspicious because you never know what they are hiding from you, what they chose to not put onto that source sheet. Um, now, there is a second thing that I wanna just warn you about, which is a second way in which you need to be suspicious of this source sheet, which is that the Talmud itself, like if you were to look in like old manuscripts or like even, you know, printings, most printings of the Talmud, the Talmud itself typically has no punctuation. But if you take a look at this source sheet, the Talmud is punctuated. Guess who did that? Me. And 
the way that I chose to punctuate it may not be the right way. So I want you to look out for that because in this next section, how we understand what's going on might be biased by how I chose to punctuate it. Not only did I put in little you know, periods and question marks and stuff like that, but I even put these lines, breaking it up into sections. And even those may not be correct because that was just my interpretation and there might be another way to read this. So let's read this first passage. The sages taught, if his son is wise, he asks him. If he is not wise, his wife asks him. And if not, he asks himself. And even two Torah scholars who know the halachot, meaning the laws of Passover, ask each other. Okay, here is the question. What are all of these people asking? That if the son is smart, he asks, and otherwise the wife asks, and if there's no wife, then the guy just asks himself. What is it that they are all asking? Why is this night different? And okay. it, really, it really says to me that it, even if there are no children present, the question must be asked. Absolutely. And I think that the way that Barbara just read it right now um, works very well if you ignore my punctuation. Because in fact, look what comes right after the passage that we just read. Um, why is this night different from all other nights? Meaning I stopped at they asked each other, but I could keep going. Even two Torah scholars who know the halachot of Pas Passover ask each other, why is this night different from all other nights? Meaning that the four questions, the manish tanah, has to be asked at all costs. Somebody has to say it. If I don't say it, you got to say it. If you don't say it, I got to say it. Um, and I'll actually show you um, an artistic depiction of this from, um, this is from the Moss Haggadah, which is a very beautiful Haggadah published in 1990, I want to say. And here he took the text of the Manish Tanah. You can see it says at the top, Manish Tanah Halayla Hazemi Kolhalilot. And then it asks the four questions. And interspersed within the four questions, you can see that there are these silhouettes that are based on this passage of the Talmud. The first silhouette is a child facing a father. The second silhouette, you've got a female figure, right? So that's the, if the son is smart, the son asks, and if not, the wife asks. Then the Talmud said that if the wife doesn't ask, then he asks himself. So here you've got this figure who's all alone. And then the Talmud says that even two Torah scholars who know the laws of Passover ask each other. And so there you've got these two rabbis asking each other. And he intersperses those pictures together with the text of Manish Tanah. So that suggests that, um, that what's going on here is that somebody has to say Manishtana. It's nice if there's a child who can say Manishtana, but if there isn't a child who says Manishtana, then somebody else could say it. The thing is, let's go back for a second and let's trust me for a minute about the punctuation. And if we put the period actually as they ask each other, that actually that's the end of the conversation, then what might the question be that they are asking each other. What is it that is important about the Exodus that we have to talk about? Oh, meaning they might be asking a different question, a totally, you know, some other question. Think back for a minute to the questions in the Torah. 
The questions in the Torah were questions where children looked around, saw that something was different and said, wait a minute, what's going on here? And that might be what we're talking about in this passage. When we talk about the fact that someone has to ask a question, we might not be talking about how someone has to ask the Manish Tanah. We might be talking about how someone has to ask a totally different question, a spontaneous question, or if I could put it in the terminology that I introduced earlier, we might be talking about the fact that someone has to ask a real question. Right before we introduce the fake questions of the Manish Tanah, where like somebody gets up and says it and then we just ignore it and keep going. But first, somebody has to ask a real question. So, first of all, I want to show you one. I want to, I'm going to come back to the Talmud, but I want to show you one interesting um, scholar who thought that there were two different things going on in this passage, both real questions and fake questions. That scholar was one of the greatest scholars, one of the greatest Jewish scholars of the Middle Ages, um, Maimonides, the Rambam. And Maimonides talks about how, um, talks about the laws of Passover for a while. And he talks about it first in chapter seven. He says the following, it is one's duty to inform the children, even if they ask no questions, as it is written, you shall tell your son, right? So first of all, you have to tell your kids what happened. The father should instruct his son according to the child's understanding. For example, he should say to one small or foolish, my son, all of us were slaves in Egypt, like this maidservant or like this manservant. And on this night, God redeemed and liberated us. One of the things that's always surprising about reading classical sources about Passover is that we think of Passover as a story about how freedom is good and slavery is bad. Um, but the sages did not necessarily see it that way because in the ancient and even in the medieval world, slavery was taken for granted. And instead, what we were celebrating on Passover was that we weren't the ones who were slaves anymore. Uh, but it, no one ever thought that it was about completely eradicating slavery. So that Maimonides imagines that a family is celebrating Passover with slaves all around them, serving them. Um, and then if the son is grown up and intelligent, he should inform him about everything that happened to us in Egypt and about the miracles that were wrought by our teacher Moses, all in according with the son's understanding. So first of all, Maimonides says, it's really important to have a conversation with your kid. And it's really important to have a conversation with your kid on whatever level your kid is at. But then in the next chapter, as he goes through what happens at the Seder, he says the following. One begins and recites the blessing who creates the fruit of the ground, takes a vegetable, dips in haroset, eats a certain amount, he and everyone reclining with him, they should all eat um, a kazayit, which is like a certain, a certain measurement. Afterwards, we take away the table from in front of the reader of the Haggadah only. We then pour the second cup and here the son asks, and then the reader says, why is this night different from all other nights? I just want to highlight that part here. Here the son asks, and then the reader says, why is this night different from all other nights? Maimonides thinks that there are two different things going on. One is the son asks a question. The son asks a question like the questions in the Torah, like, what's going on here? Why are we doing this? Why are we having the Seder right now? And then after the son asks his question and presumably somebody gives it a real answer, then the reader reads out the Manish Tanakh. So you have both a real question, 
followed by these ritualized questions of the Manishtana. And so basically plan A is we, um, we all um, sort of the children ask a question, we have a conversation. Plan B is the children don't ask a question and the parents have to like prompt them and teach them how to ask questions. But either way, after that happens, the next thing that happens later is you say the Manishtana. Manishtana is its separate thing. There's the real questions and then there's Manishtana. Okay, that's all very well and good that Maimonides says that. However, there are certain passages in the Talmud that suggest a different relationship between Manishtana and real questions. Um, so here I'm, I'm actually just going back up to the Talmud passage, that's source number four, but we're gonna be looking at the very bottom section of it. And this is a discussion of, you remember in the Mishnah it said, he begins with disgrace and concludes with praise, that it starts with something bad and then goes to something good. Um, and the Talmud asks, what disgrace? Like, what's the bad thing that we start our story with? Rav said, at first our forefathers were idol worshipers, right? That we start with the fact that we used to worship idols, and then we continue with the fact that now we worship God. And Shmuel said we were slaves, right? That we start with, that's Avadim Hayinu, right? That we start with the fact that we were slaves, and then we talk about how we were free. Rav Nachman said to his servant, Daru, right? So now we have a little story where Rav Nachman turns to his, his slave, right? Here, it's, I translate it as servant, but it's really, it's a slave. He turns to his slave, whose name is Daru, and he says to him, a slave who is freed by his master, who gives him gold and silver, right? That the master frees the slave and then gives the slave gold and silver. What should the slave say to him, right? So, so the, imagine if you're a slave and your master says this to you, like, hey, what, what do you think a slave would do if their master freed them and gave them gold and silver? So Daru, the slave, is probably like, yeah, that sounds great. I would love that. Um, and Daru said to him, he must thank and praise, right? That he needs to say a really big thank you. And then he, meaning then Rav Nachman, he said to him, you have exempted us from reciting why is this night different? That, oh, now we don't need to say Manishtana. He immediately began to recite, we were slaves. I wanna just, I'm just gonna take down the screen share for a second so we can talk about this story because it's really kind of a shocking story in some ways. The Rav Nachman seems to be kind of like dangling like this freedom in front of his, um, his slave where he says to the slave like, um, you know, wouldn't it be nice if your master freed you and gave you gold and silver? And the slave's like, yeah, that would be nice. And then he's like, okay, you have now been um, a perfect example. Thank you very much. You can go now. And then he starts reading the Haggadah. Um, and I see some of you shaking your heads. It, it seems very disturbing. I'll tell you actually an interesting interpretation that I heard once of this story where somebody suggested that in fact, Maybe that's not really what happened in the story. Maybe really what happened is that Rav Nachman did free Daru and give him gold and silver. And that that's sort of what was cool about what was happening here was that he was basically performing a symbolic act that demonstrated to his family what being freed from slavery looked like. And that like, you know, the children could see what it looked like for Daru to go from being a slave to being a free person. And that they were able to really understand what 
the Israelites went through in their um, slavery and redemption. But so that's that's kind of the, about the weird part of the story. But I want to just think about that sentence at the end where he says he has this conversation with the slave about um, what what would it be like for you to go free? And then he says to the slave, now we don't need to say manishtana. You have exempted us from saying manishtana. So why do you think that is? Why do you think that after this conversation between the master and the slave, the family no longer needs to say manishtana at their seder? Like what's going on there? If you, if you have an understanding about the true nature of Pesach, the ritualized words are less important. Yeah, okay, you said that so nicely that it seems like the Manishtana is like, that if we have to ritualize it, we will. But that if we can get to that point in like a more genuine kind of way, with like a more genuine kind of conversation and understanding, then like, let's do that. And I want to show you a second Talmudic story that actually has basically the same, um, it's a different plot, but the same punchline. Um, so this is source number six. Um, Okay, so it's also from the Talmud, and it starts with this idea of removing the table. Um, now, it's possible that none of you has ever been at a Seder where the table was removed in the middle of a Seder. But the reason why is that their, um, their interior design was different from ours. Um, we generally sit um, sort of in upright chairs around a large table, but in the time of the sages, they were reclining like think like a Roman party where like they were all like reclining on like couches or beds and so they would have each one of them would have like kind of like a little tv table in front of his or her um, couch or bed um, so you'd have these like small individual tables and so you would have the option of like when like let's say the waiters would come um, to take your plate they wouldn't take your plate they would take your table like they would just pick up the whole table and clear it. Um, and so the Talmud discusses a tradition to take away the whole table right before Manishtana. Some of us at our seders actually do something somewhat similar to this, which is that nowadays we don't remove the table, but we do remove the seder plate. We actually, my family does that at our seder. That right before Manishtana, we remove the seder plate. And so back then they would remove the little table that was in front of the seder leader. And the Talmud asks, why does one remove the table? The school of Rabbi Yanai say, so that the children will notice and they will ask. So this is already a new thing, which is that since we want children to ask real questions, we want them to, you know, to be bothered by what's going on around them and to ask spontaneous questions, we actually do weird things in order to provoke them to ask a question. And so, um, so this is something that we do. We take the table, we move it away, and then we wait for one of the kids to say, what's going on? And indeed, here is a story of it working. 
Abaye was sitting before Rabbah. Abaye and Rabbah are both Talmudic sages, but Abaye is also the adopted son of Rabbah. So this is basically a story of a father and son. So Abaye, who's presumably still a child in this story, is sitting at his Seder, at his family Seder. He saw that they were removing the table from before him. And he said, we have not yet eaten and you are taking the table away from us, right? So he fell into the trap, hook, line, and sinker, right? They removed the table so that the child would ask the question and he fell for it and he asked the question. And Rabbah said to him, you have exempted us from reciting Manishtana. Again, here we have it that really what we're looking for ideally is spontaneous conversation is natural, real questions. If we don't have any real questions, then we'll resort to saying the Manishtana. But isn't it nicer if we ask a real question? Now, the thing about this story is that there's one thing that is kind of problematic about the story, which is, um, what is the answer to Abaye's question? When Abaye says, wait a minute, we haven't even eaten. Why are you removing the table? What's the answer? Can't hear you. So that you won't be distracted. Um, but is that the answer? We just said what the answer is. We just said why we remove the table. Why do we remove the table? To provoke question of, of exactly. So when I buy it, why are you removing the table? Right, exactly. So when Abaye says, "Why are you removing the table?" What's the answer? So that you'll ask why. Are exactly. So meaning that is not the most um, productive conversation in the world. And the toast vote source number seven basically says exactly that. So, so the children will notice and ask, meaning from that he will come to ask about other matters, right? But from the fact that he asked why we were removing the table wouldn't exempt them from Manishtana. Meaning that really what we're talking about here is that we're trying to provoke any kind of question in the hope that we will get to good questions. Um, and that's the thing about Manishtana, is that Manishtana, it may be canned, it may be ritualized, but it is actually a question that is about the essence of the Seder, right? Why do we eat matzah? Why do we eat maror? Those are questions that really get to the heart of what we're doing there. And not every question is as good as every other question. So maybe, Spontaneous questions aren't necessarily all they're cracked up to be, unless, but the toast vote also kind of suggests that what's really supposed to happen is not just that the child asks a spontaneous question and then you check the box. Like, okay, great, now we've asked the question, but that really what's supposed to happen is that a conversation is supposed to develop from there. And where we really see that coming out is in a different um, medieval scholar, the Maharil, Rabbi Isaac Moellen, who describes um, also this idea of Manishtana being dispensable in favor of real questions. And this is what he says. The second cup is poured as they are about to say Manishtana. And my tea, right, and this is the second cup of wine, right? We don't drink it until much later in the Seder, but we pour it right before Manishtana. And my teacher said that this is so that the children will ask, why are we pouring more to drink so much, but not eating anything? Although, of course, the answer to that would be so that you would ask. But anyway, if the child asks, 
it is not necessary to recite Manishtana. He may begin with, we were slaves if he wishes. So fine. So here we have exactly that same idea that as soon as there is a spontaneous question, that is good enough. And you can go to, you can go on to the next thing. But then he goes even further and says, my teacher said that in the discourses of Rabbeinu Simcha, he wrote that if there is a child who asks, why did you remove the Seder plates? Then one does not recite the Haggadah at all. The proof from the Talmud is that it says there, you have exempted us from saying Manishtana, and it is all one unit until Rabban Gamliel would say, right? The Mishnah described first Manishtana, and then you starting from the bad and ending with the good and expounding all the verses. So that whole thing is one unit. So you skip it all. I'm just going to finish the text and then I want to talk about it for a second. Um, my teacher recounted that his father-in-law, Rabbi Moshe Katz, was once asked by his daughter, father, why did you lift the Seder plates? And he started with, we were slaves and didn't say Manishtana, right? So meaning here we've got the, the poor daughter who like has been practicing Manishtana for weeks. And then she asks a question and then he's like, oh, no Manishtana anymore. Um, but it's showing that they really think that actually Manishtana is a fallback, but it's not just that. He says that if a child, he's, he quotes this opinion, it says that if a child asks a spontaneous question, then you skip the whole Haggadah. What does that mean? I want you to think about like, what, what's supposed to happen at that point? When the child asks the spontaneous question, you say, okay, dinner. Um, I don't think so. What do you think is supposed to happen after the child asks the spontaneous question? I think that, that it's still important for the child to do the Manishtana because it is a participation in the entire Seder. And the degree to which a child can participate is kind of limited because of the intricacies of the story. So that portion is so important because of the way it makes them feel that they are so, a part of it. So you know I, it's... I think that's a real, oh, sorry, somebody wanted to say something. Yeah, I, I wanted to, to interject the thought, though, that if, in fact, you did that, that someone asks a spontaneous question and you say, okay, it's time for the Shulchan Haru, you know, it's time to eat, that would raise so many more questions. About <laughs> Maybe it's worth Wait, a try. <laughs> Wait a second. What about all of, you know, what about these stories? So I, I think that, you know, how can I put this? The Haggadah is sort of a check the boxes type of approach towards the holiday. You know, you read this, this you, you know, I mean, how many times, you know, everybody knows dipping their finger, but if right. you all of a sudden preempted it, especially with everyone's expectations that you weren't going to preempt it. I mean, everybody kind of sits down with a, oh boy, here we go. And you right. know, I've gotten to... I have the baseball Haggadah, the 30-minute Haggadah, which never <laughs> takes 30 minutes, largely because the adults participating are going like, is this going to take more than an hour? Are we, you know, when I was a kid, I still remember going to my uncle's. Right. Uh, okay, so basically, stadium. right. Like uncle, when you're yeah, my uncle was a, a Hasidic, uh, not rabbi, but he was he was a Hasidic person 
And all I remember is after three and a half hours and we had gotten to the second cup, I fell asleep. I mean, you know, the, the Seder <laughs> right. on. So, so yeah, I so Seders can be really ritualistic and really boring. And I feel like what they're saying in this text, when they're saying, you don't, if a child asks a spontaneous question, you don't say the whole Haggadah, is they're basically saying like the whole text is just there as a fallback. It's not just the Manishtana is there as a fallback if the children don't ask questions, but the whole text is a fallback. Because what should we really be doing? We should really be talking. We should really be discussing and listening to each other. Um, and, um, and, you know, talking about it in a way that is meaningful to us also, right? That, that all of the, right, that the, the, the Talmud keeps talking about lefida ato shall ben, that you have to do it according to the level of the sun, that this is supposed to be a conversation that is specific to you and your family and talk about the things that matter. And that really the whole text of the Haggadah is not there to put us to sleep and is not there for like a three hour thing where we're all rolling our eyes. It's there for us to, um, it's there for us as a backup. It's there as, as a tool that we can use among other tools. Okay, so there for now, I have basically presented you with one approach to the Manishtana and to like this whole idea of ritualized rote questions, which is that it's all just a backup. And that really what we should be doing at the Seder is we should be having genuine, spontaneous conversations between the people who are at the table. But now I wanna go back to Barbara's comments because Barbara says, wait a minute, having a ritualized thing that is performed specifically by children actually has its value. And I want to look at a couple of texts that actually make additional arguments for why it might be good for us to actually have ritualized questions as part of our Seder. Meaning that right now, you know, first I presented an argument that said that really it's all about the real questions and the Manishtanized fake questions and that's less good. But now I wanna to try to present the opposite perspective, which is that maybe there's actually good reason why we wanna be saying questions that are fake questions that are just a ritualized recitation of questions. For this part, I wanna look at two um, 20th century American rabbis. Um, the first one is Rabbi Rav Soloveitchik. Um, Rav Soloveitchik in his Haggadah talks about the Manishtana and um, he start, his starting point is the Rambam, Maimonides. We saw that the Rambam thought that there should be both real questions and fake questions at the Seder, right? That first the children should ask their own questions and then the reader should say the Manishtana. Um, and so he says as follows, this is source number nine. It is clear from Maimonides' words that the son does not ask the questions of Manishtana. Rather, the son asks about what he is wondering about, and the reader of the Haggadah is the one who asks Manishtana and the questions after it. So that's what we saw in Maimonides, is that there were two different things. There was the spontaneous question of the child, and then there was the rote reading by the leader. According to this, nowadays, when there is not one reader who reads the Haggadah for everyone, right, he's saying, oh, that was talking about a situation where one person read the Haggadah for everyone, but nowadays, everyone at the Seder must say Manishtana. And this was the custom in the house of Rabbeinu Chaim of blessed memory, everyone said Manishtana, beginning with the youngest and ending with 
the oldest. Um, so this is this is a custom, and, and I've actually I've had students who had this custom in their families that even if you had a seder with like 25 people, you would go around the room and every single one of those 25 people would say the manishtana. Um, I see certain youngest in the in the Zoom smiling <laughs> at that idea. <laughs> Doesn't have to be just me, um, but um, but but it's funny because basically, like until now, we were looking at texts that basically said that Manishana was dispensable, right? That like we didn't need to ask Manishana if the child asked a spontaneous question. That's even better. Manishana is just a last resort. But here, Manishana is the opposite of a last resort. It is the centerpiece of the seder, right? If you have those twenty-five people each saying it one after the other, there is no other part of the Haggadah that is recited in that. Way. Way. So the Manishtana is actually like the sort of most important thing. So why is that then? So he has an interesting theory about why Manishtana is so important. To explain Maimonides, it appears that he is speaking of two aspects. First, on the Seder night, the son must ask who he is wondering about. And also, there is a rule that the Exodus story itself must be told in the form of question and answer. So he says, basically, this is kind of like a literary device. This is how Manishtana, this is how we're supposed to tell the story of the Exodus is in this format of questions and answers, right? Just like in the Torah, there were questions and then there was answers. That is how we are always supposed to tell that story. And in fact, if you think about the Seder, you will find that many parts of the Seder actually are in the format of questions and answers. Can anybody think of other examples in the Seder of things that are in the format of questions and answers? Matzah al-Shumah. Okay, great, right? And in fact, that's a really good example that Rav Soloveitchik highlights because in the Mishnah, it doesn't ask it as a question. In the Mishnah, it just says, we eat matzah because of this. We eat mara because of this. But then when it gets into the Haggadah, they turn it into the form of question and answer. Matzah she'anu achlim al shuma. Why do we eat matzah? Because of this. Why do we eat mara? Because of this. Can you think of other examples of things in the Haggadah that are specifically in that format of question, answer. The four children. The four children, the four children is actually a double because first of all, the four children is a description of what is the question that each child asks, but also, and here I've got a picture of the four children in the Haggadah, um, the four children start with a question for each one. Chacham, Mahu Omer, the wise son, what does he say? And then it asks the wise son's question. Rasha, Mahu Omer, what's the question that the wicked, what does the wicked person say? And then the wicked son's question. So, um, so again, we kind of put in these questions and answers, even where we don't need them. Any other examples of questions that question and answer format? Echad mi odea. That's a good one, right? Each one. Who knows one? Okay, we get it. You know one. Um, any more? Put in others. Right. So that's the Mara al Shuma. I put in there. Um, oh, 
Okay, a couple more that I'll tell you. I, um, I wonder. Just, I, I wonder if the aspir if there's always a question embedded within the aspiration, the, the aspirational. Like when we when we say Lashana Habab Yerushalayim, are we ah. saying like this? Uh, this is a statement of faith. Like next year, I believe we'll be there. Or is it a question? Like where will we be? You know. So <laughs> I like that. That's a good one. And it also reminds me of the most important aspirational question in the Seder, which is, when do we eat? Uh, <laughs> but um, a couple of other examples of ritualized questions in the Haggadah. Um, could it be that we should start studying Passover from the beginning of the month? No, scripture says from that day. And then the really fun one is that in the Hallel that we recite, when we are singing praises to God, the main chapter of Hallel that we sing is, it's like really about the Exodus, is the chapter of Vitzei Yisrael Mimitzrayim, when the Israelites left Egypt. And in that chapter, in the Hallel itself, there are questions. Why is it that the sea is turning around and that the um, River Jordan is running the other way? So that kind of throughout the Haggadah, in embedded in so many levels are so many kind of questions and answers. Um, so this is like a really kind of cute point about the structure of the Seder. But the thing is that Rav Soloveitchik does not actually explain why that is the case. Like, why is it a thing to have all kinds of questions um, and, and have the whole story of the Exodus be told in the form of questions and answers. So for this, I wanted to bring in an interesting theory by Rav Yitzchak Hutner, the author of the Pachad Yitzchak. And Rav Hutner says as follows, the Exodus story must begin with disgrace and end with praise, right? Remember, we saw that in the Mishnah, that you have to start with the bad and end with the good. We saw that there were a couple of examples given for what that would mean. One of the examples was um, that you start with, we were slaves and you end with, but then God freed us. And the other possibility is we start with, um, we were idolaters and then come to, and now we worship God. Um, but Rav Hutner says we fulfill that requirement through telling that before the redemption we were slaves and also our forefathers were idolaters. Sorry, that's what I just said. And this is explained by the Maharal as follows. When you understand more, you will know that praise preceded by disgrace is higher praise, just as day is preceded by night. Meaning to say, guess what, guys, we're free is not nearly as exciting as to say, we used to be slaves and now we're free. That when you have something good that it comes after something bad, you appreciate it so much more than when you just have the good thing all along. And he gives the example of day and night, that every morning we appreciate the day because it comes after the night. And if it wasn't, if it wasn't for that, then we would just take it for granted and we wouldn't appreciate it. And then he says, we continue this line of reasoning because the way we tell the Exodus story matches the content of the story. That the same way that just as the content of the story requires telling about redemption specifically as wholeness that grew out of deficiency, so too the form of the story is specifically as an answer to a question. Meaning that 
the form of question and answer is parallel to the content of starting with a lack and then getting to uh, having that thing. It is clear that any realization we have that comes as a resolution to our doubts or an answer to a challenge will be much better than if we had made the realization in a neutral way with no doubt or difficulty preceding it. Meaning any piece of knowledge that I have that like I spend hours wondering, oh my gosh, I wonder what is, you know, what is the formula for, you know, uh, I don't know, what, whatever question it is that I'm wondering about for a long time, and then I find out what the answer is, I'm going to be really excited to find out that answer. But if somebody just told me that piece of information as a random fact, I'd be like, oh, okay, fine. Um, but I wouldn't be so interested in it. So I appreciate information more when it comes out of a question. And we find that the advantage of an understanding that comes as an answer to a challenge over understanding alone is exactly like the advantage of praise that begins with disgrace over praise alone. So that meaning these two things are the same. The information that I get that's as an answer to a question being better than information that is just plain is the same way that having a good thing like freedom that comes after slavery is so much more valued and treasured than having a good thing like freedom that like we just take for granted all the time. And that is why the Exodus story, whose content is praise that follows disgrace, its form is also to begin with a challenge and to end with an answer. So basically what Rav Hutner is telling us is that this, this actually there is a value to these fake questions, to these ritualized questions, because it, it basically reflects the whole process that we're going through. That the process that we're trying to go through on Seder nights is the process of going from the bad to the good. And that that format of the question, the wondering, the lack, even if it's totally formalized, even if it's totally ritualized, it still helps us along that path and takes us from the bad, from the lacking to the good where we have what we are seeking out. I feel like that notion of the Seder as a journey of going from the bad to the good, where we appreciate the good so much more because of the bad, is also like especially resonant this year. Um, because over the course of the last year, we learned to not take for granted so many things that were like totally obvious to us until now. Oh, I can be in the same room as my parents. Um, never thought that that would be something that I would be so excited about. And yet um, now it's something that none of us will, um, will take for granted anymore. And that we've all had that experience of kind of going from um, starting from of um, starting from things that are difficult and helping and seeing how much more we appreciate those things afterwards. And obviously we should, our hope is that we should continue to um, get sort of from, uh, from darkness to light and from lacking to having and um, continue to appreciate the um, exodus from our current situation. Um, so, um, I was supposed to leave longer for questions, but I left a little bit of time. Um, so the floor is open. Hey friends, yes, we have about five minutes. Let's hear if anyone has any questions on, uh, on, on these texts. Yeah, Judy. It seems to me that the Seder is teaching us a lot more than just the Exodus, that it's teaching us how to be Jews because it's saying, 
everybody's voice is important in the conversation and everybody needs to raise questions so that we can explore them together. And it's gotta be a conversation across the generations and across the millennia. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I think in general, so much of the Seder is about how to teach, right? It's not just about like what the story is, but it's about how to tell it and how to, how to present it. So, and that's, yeah, that's a really great way of looking at it. And that answers the really main question, which is why do we get together every year? Why do we do this over and over and over? We already know the story. Why do we do this? And there are so many answers to that. In my family, we rewrite the Haggadah every year. We, mm -hmm. are, we each contribute a part of the Haggadah. And, and then oh, yeah? my daughter puts it all together and we have a, our own Haggadah. Amazing. <laughs> this year, of course. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's a beautiful custom. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I think today when we talk about questioning, you should be questioning. I think what we're normally talking about is skepticism. Mm -hmm. You should be questioning of authority, questioning of uh, validity. And I wonder, like, there's how do we inspire this other type of questioning, this type of inquiry, just a love of learning that is not necessarily just rooted in skepticism. I mean, I'm all for skepticism, but another type, which is kind of a a deep love for knowledge, a thirst for knowing, a, a thirst for for hitzlam um, if you will. You know, I, I think that what the, a lot of the rabbinic sources suggest that this is actually like just a natural thing that children do, right? That like the kids will naturally, if they see something that's weird, they'll naturally be like, hey, what's going on? Um, and then maybe we kind of forget how to do that. But that, that there seems to be an expectation that like, if you, you know, just sort of do something interesting, then that'll be enough to get children to, you know, to ask. If I can ask another question, how do we see God, God in Tanakh as a question asker? I, I believe Yonah is the only book to end with a question. Um, but I mean, does does God ask us questions? Well, the most famous question that I can think of is when uh, with Adam and Eve, right? When they eat from the fruit of the tree and they hide and God says, where are you? And it's I mean, it's a classic you know, the rabbis jump on it because like, doesn't God know where they are? And says basically that, that God is trying to start a conversation. And that like, you know, as a teacher, I do that all the time. I ask questions that I know the answer to. Um, you know, I know that lawyers are supposed to never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. So like, it kind of reminds us that the purpose of questioning is not just to get information. It's also to like, create a relationship with the people who we're talking to. One last person who wants to jump in here before we wrap up. Wonderful. This has been fantastic. And I couldn't think of a better way to enter, enter Pesach than with this learning with you, Chana. Uh, so thank you so much. And we set this up so long ago. I was like, Pesach. Like, is everything about? Oh, yeah, it actually about. came. <laughs> thank you, Chana. Thank you so much, everyone. This was really, really wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Awesome. Chag Sameach, Chag Sameach to everyone. Yes, sir. Koach, Anna. Bye-bye. Thank you, everybody.